I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Stop, the stop, 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 stop. You cannot make it look like William Tapley is supporting our program. Sorry, folks. Chris Roseborough here, just to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And no, William Tapley is not our spokesperson. Uh, if you don't already support us financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Fade. Monday, August 12, 2013. Okay, today will be the, the last official program dedicated to the baptism topic. I uh, interviewed Wolf Mueller earlier today and decided that it would be good to kind of like do the follow-up so you can see the difference and have some of these questions answered. Details forthwith. Thank you for tuning in or listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There's no shortage of crazy things being said out there, and we we take the time to stop, open our Bibles, and compare what God's Word says in context. Now, last week, you remember, I, uh, I took an entire episode uh, to dedicate to the topic of baptism. It's not a topic I cover very often here. I mention baptism from time to time, uh, but it's not something I do a lot of in-depth work on. And, well, like if you remember last week, what prompted a lot of this was uh, Matt Haney's charge that, you know, I'm not a Christian, I'm a heretic, and that Luther's not a Christian, and, you know, things like that. So it uh, it needed a response, and uh, if you listen to the program, then you're aware that I put forward what I, you know, consider to be the biblical case for the Lutheran doctrine of uh, baptism. Now, I have literally been receiving hundreds of emails from listeners uh, asking follow-up questions that I think are fantastic and good. And uh, I've taken a, a lot of the questions that are similar and kind of compiled them into a short list because what I'm finding is a lot of listeners are asking a lot of the same types of questions. And I enlisted the help of Pastor Brian Wolfmuller of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado, to uh, help me field some of these, uh, specifically because um, his pastoral experience is, well, far superior to mine. I'm not in. Uh, I'm not currently an ordained minister, and uh, so as a result of it, I wanted to make sure that uh, I didn't handle it 
only as an apologist because some of the questions that were brought up really need a little bit more of a pastoral touch, if you know what I mean. And so the first hour, what we're going to do today is we're going to play that interview with uh, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. And then in hour number two, we're going to review a sermon uh, from Keystone Church, which is a seeker-driven church plant. And the pastor there sounds a lot like kind of a combination of Ed Young and David Hughes. And uh, we're going to be reviewing uh, his sermon on why baptism, you know. Um, and the reason I'm doing that is so that you can kind of hear the spectrum. And what I can I consider this this particular sermon to be very much you know in the mainstream of evangelical preaching and thought on baptism and uh, we'll take a listen to what's going on there and I'll chime in and uh, note the comparative points but if you haven't already listened to the last sermon of the Friday episode of Fighting for the Faith from Pastor Ernie Lastman, I recommend that you read, uh, not read it, but listen to it if you haven't already listened to it, so that it's fresh in your mind on how a Lutheran preaches on baptism so that you can see the contrast. And then the idea here is is that I'm not asking you to uh, listen with an open mind. What I'm asking you to do is listen with an open Bible. Big difference. And so um, this will be like the last program dedicated to the topic of baptism you know, for the foreseeable future. Again, it's a topic we cover from time to time, uh, but uh, moving forward after this episode, it'll be back to the standard fighting for the faith fair. I, I don't want to you know, beat this horse to death, if you know what I'm saying. So without any further ado, here is my interview recorded earlier today with Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. All right, on the line, I have uh, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado, and I've invited him on Fighting for the Faith today to discuss... Uh, some of the really great questions that I've been receiving uh, from the listeners of Fighting for the Faith that I think uh, require a little bit more of a pastoral answer than just an apologetic answer. Thanks for coming on the uh, program, Brian. It's been a while. I know. It's great. Great to be with you. The resident pastoral touch, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, see, here's the deal is that you actually, being a pastor, have had to um, strengthen the pastoral muscle and uh, since I'm not doing a, a pulpit ministry, uh, you know, and doing that kind of ministry, I, I don't, that muscle of mine hasn't been strengthened as much. And I'm, I'm afraid that I would do the knee-jerk flaming sword reaction and, and, and end up, I might be correct, but end up destroying half of the uh, United States in the process. And so I decided to... You know, Luther talks about when dealing with false doctrine, you have to make this distinction between the person who's falsely taught and the first, and the person who's falsely teaching. Right. And he says it's like the it's like the child that's bit by the dog. The parent kicks the dog and consoles the child. And some of us are better at kicking, <laughs> and some are better at consoling. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll let I'll let the listeners figure out which is which in this. <laughs> let the listener understand. <laughs> Correct. Okay, so um, I don't know if you had the opportunity to hear the, hear the program that I did last week on baptism, but um, there was a, uh, a Reformed Baptist who, uh, his name is uh, Matt Haney, and uh, he teaches at a, uh, a church in San Antonio, Texas, and he basically accused, he basically said I wasn't a Christian, that I was a heretic, Luther is a heretic, and, and uh, why? Because of what they teach regarding baptism, and so um, I, I needed to respond and, and demonstrate to people that, uh, no, Lutherans actually base their doctrine of baptism on what the Scriptures say, not on human opinions. And right. I, I threw the writings of the Church Fathers into it, not because they're authoritative, but to demonstrate uh, that 
that historically the earliest Christians always understood these texts that we appeal to as referring to baptism. And I found it interesting that um, there are a lot of folks nowadays uh, who, when you cite these baptismal texts, they'll say, well, it's not about baptism. So I call it a dehydrated uh, hermeneutic that they have. Fantastic. So, you know, but in laying out the case and going back to these baptismal texts, uh, you know, the, I think there's some really good follow-up questions that have come up as a result of it. And I think uh, we got to let the other shoe drop, if you know what I mean. Yeah, that's right. Now, I, did, I haven't listened. I'm sorry. But this accusation goes against the Lutherans. I, I remember reading the Spurgeon sermon, who, that, and that's your kind of the kind of vein that these guys are living in. And, right. And he talks about... Uh, he talks about in his sermon on infant baptism, about how infant baptism is the worst false doctrine brought into the church straight from the uh, straight from hell itself, and it's the cause for uh, more people losing their salvation uh, than any other false doctrine in the church. He just rails and rails and rails against infant baptism for pages, and then at the end he says, "We need men like Luther to stand up for the truth." <laughs> <laughs> Okay, that, that, that's, a, that's a little bit of uh, irony. Although, I, you know, I consider Spurgeon to be a brother. I have no doubt that we're going to see him in glory. It's just that I, I, I think that there's this—Luther actually uh, makes a distinction. He, he points out the fact that the Anabaptists, in, in arguing against the papists, because their theology regarding baptism is truly—it it relies on this concept of ex opera operato, as well as it turns baptism into a work— but in their right criticism of the papists and their belief in turning baptism into a work, we get caught in the crossfire, and they don't make the distinction between us and the uh, the Roman Catholic Church. As a result of it, <clears throat> we're constantly charged with believing in faith plus one work. That work mm-hmm. is baptism. But right. I, you know, I tried to demonstrate that, uh, no, listen, the Scripture makes it very clear. Uh, baptism is God's work because... I, last time I checked, uh, although I got to ask you this: How skilled are you at circumcising people's hearts? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you want to ask a few casualties of that attempt? Yeah, know? right, right. <laughs> you know, it, it, I know it's kind of tongue in cheek, but the point is, is that when you look at the things going on in baptism, it washes away sins. It's for the remission of sins. Uh, we're buried with Christ. We're raised with Christ, and our hearts are circumcised by Christ. And you got all the passive verbs, you know, showing that it's not the baptizee who's doing the work, but is being baptized. Uh, it, it's really clear this is God's work, not ours. And so, I uh, the way I laid it out uh, last week is uh, it's real simple. We can't go back to Calvary. We cannot go back to Golgotha and what Christ accomplished on the cross is is truly one for us and that baptism is is the delivery system of what Christ delivered uh one for us on the cross. So the idea here is is it's you know the road by which uh we arrive at uh, at justification or an individual sinner is uh you know as has that forensic justification individually applied to them. And I, I think that's a good way of describing it. It may, you know, the analogy might break down in, at no, different no, points. No, no, that's, that's a perfect way to describe it. Here, and, and then we have to start asking the question, if, because this is so clear in the Scriptures. I mean, it, it is very, very clear. I mean, just to back up a statement as, as far back as we can and, and make it as simple as we can and say that at least when we read what the Bible says about baptism, we know it has to have something to do with salvation. I mean, we know that. Right. I mean, that that is almost. I mean, every passage about baptism is talking about some sort of gift of the gospel. So we know that. And then we come along and we say, what kind of what kind of theology would a person have 
that would not allow them to see that in all of these passages. And I, and I think what the kind of driving factor, the thing that's going on there, and we'll get into this in some of the specifics of the questions, but so the driving thing is that if it's external, if it's, a, if it's something that's, that has to do with physical stuff, then it has to belong to the law and not the gospel. Right. So because there's some sort of action involved or some sort of thing involved, it, it is immediately erased from a person's mind as having anything to do with salvation. Right. It's, it's basically a Gnosticism. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I understand what you're saying. And, and Luther, in one of his uh, later baptismal sermons, he actually did six baptism sermons uh, in a row, and then it, it got uh, you know transcribed into one big sermon you know later in Wittenberg. But he he likened uh, taking the Holy Spirit out of baptism to denying the deity of Christ and only focusing on the man Jesus, you know. And so you know that's kind of the offense of the incarnation is is that is that Jesus is God incarnate. He's the God man. And for you know historically there have been sects you know that have been absolutely bristled at the thought that God would tabernacle in human flesh, and, and that was a big offense for them, and so they tried to erase the deity of Christ and turn him into a mere man. I think something similar akin is going on when people want to take the Holy Spirit out of baptism and just make it water. No, exactly. It, it, 100% exactly right. I mean, Jesus does use physical things to save us. Uh, namely, he, he uses his body. I mean, he takes upon himself... Uh, 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 flesh and blood, so that he might die, right? Uh, that we would be saved, and he continues to do this kind of very um, physical sort of stuff to save us. Still, right? Uh, and, but, the, and, but we want something spiritual, you know, something in the heart. The, 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 I mean, this—if you could summarize kind of American Christianity, serious Christianity, not the kind of goofballs, but serious American Christianity—it would be—it would say that the realm of God's spiritual activity is limited to the heart. Maybe some people, like uh, some of the Calvinists, they and the mind. <laughs> right. But mostly it's just the heart. And if it's outside of me, it can't have anything to do with Jesus. And baptism, God be praised, is outside of me. <laughs> yep, yep. But, you know, and here's the funny thing. I think if you were to really push hard on a lot of, you know, the serious, you know, Christianity, as you're describing it here, they would have no problem at the end of the day saying, listen, I am redeemed by R.H. typable blood that was truly shed on a wooden cross 2,000 years ago. So on, in one sense, they do acknowledge the means of grace, at least one, and that is human blood was spilt and redeemed me a lost sinner. So, you know, they don't have a problem with that. It's just they're not seeing the connection with the other thing. You, you understand what I'm saying? Oh yeah, I understand a hundred percent what you're saying. So, so I mean, and and that's because you have this idea that where Jesus does it all, uh, except now it's up to me to accept it. You know, so that little kind of the the work of the will, or or in Calvin and our Calvinist friends, you have Calvin's idea of the two species of calling. That's what that's what he calls it. So you have the external call of the gospel, which is for everybody, but then you have the internal illumination of the Holy Spirit, which is only for the elect. And so again, the, 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 final, the final step in me being saved is something happening inside of me, right. either my own decision or the Holy Spirit uh, uh, converting my heart uh, internally or something like that. So the final step 
factor for being saved has to be this internal sort of thing. Right. And and this uh, for everybody. I mean, that's the Arminian, the Calvinist, the everybody. And so so when the when the Lutheran uh, Lutherans stand there and say, no, no, look, it's baptism that does it. Something is happening outside of you to save you. Mm-hmm. It, it it is uh, it is heresy uh, to to this to the internal switch gospel. Right. Uh, it has to be because it's. Um, it runs so counter to everything that the preaching and the worship and the people uh, in the in the change of heart Christianity are working towards. Right. Yeah, I, I get exactly what you're saying, but it's not like our position doesn't have thorny questions that immediately follow upon its presentation, and which yes. which is the reason why I wanted to invite you on. And you know, notice a great segue there. I've been working on my segues, by the way. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic! I didn't even notice. Yeah, it was, that was seamless until I pointed it out. But uh, let, let, let's take a look at some of these questions that I've been uh, receiving, and I've sent you a list of them so that you can kind of look a- ahead of them. But literally, I've received hundreds of emails um, over the past week from people, and I find that I'm hearing the same questions over and over and over again from the uh, from different people. Which and these are the great logical you know, questions that follow upon a presentation that says Scripture says baptism is for the remission of sins. Scripture says baptism is a washing of regeneration. Uh, baptism washes away sins. Baptism saves. Baptism is for our children. So immediately there's great questions that follow, and I think we need to unpack some of these. So let, let's dive into it. Let's take a look at this one of these questions, and which I think is one of the immediate questions that constantly comes up. So somebody. He writes, he says, are you saying that without baptism, you can't be saved, that baptism is absolutely required for salvation? And if so, how do you handle the thief on the cross with Jesus? Does baptism require a physical act or or if if it is a work of God, not our work, can it be done by the spirit instead? So there's kind of two questions there, but they're all kind of intricately linked. Now, now, before I, I, I let you take a crack at this, I do want to let you know that last week I, I did take a little bit of a crack at the thief on the cross, and I made it very clear that if you put the thief on the cross on a timeline, okay, the, uh, the, the institution where Christ says, go and make disciples baptizing teaching, that command or you know, imperative from Christ isn't going to occur until 43 days after the cross, okay? And so I, I basically said we need to think of the thief on the cross as kind of like the last of the old Testament saints. Um, because you know, we're, we're, he's at the crossroads of the old covenant and the new covenant. And so yeah, that's, a couple of these questions will want to have that because when you talk about the people in the old Testament, they, they didn't have the gift of baptism. Baptism is, as you said, specifically bound to the new Testament, right? Uh, which, which is begun then on, on Pentecost, really, uh, when, uh, 10 days after the ascension of Jesus, when the Holy Spirit is, is uh, poured out on the on the disciples, on the apostles, and uh, three thousand people are baptized on that day. So, right. so you're you're right about that. Um, there was baptism happening before uh, it was initiated with John the Baptist, and then Jesus himself, through his disciples, takes up the work of baptizing, and that's John chapter four that we see that. So there was baptism going on. Right. So it could have been that the thief on the cross was baptized, but no matter. This doesn't. Uh, of of course, uh, the Lord is not. Uh, uh, limited his his own saving work to uh, to baptism. I think the the way that we want to look at this question, these questions pastorally, is uh, the, the scriptures do talk about the necessity of baptism. Uh, Jesus said, this is John three five is the text for that. Most assuredly, I say to you, and this is Jesus to Nicodemus, 
unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. So this is the this is the scripture text where we where we learn the, of the necessity of baptism uh, straight from the mouth of Jesus. Now I, I suspect some people would say, well, that's not baptism. The, the water there refers to, I think the argument is, the water refers to amniotic fluid. Right, and we covered this and we covered this last week, and I, I cited all of the church fathers who clearly saw that this was baptismal. Right, and, I mean, and you see it too. I mean, John chapter 1, John the Baptist is baptizing. John chapter 4, the disciples of Jesus are baptizing. And, and Nicodemus knows this. I mean, he, he's not ignorant of that John. I mean, John the Baptist's baptizing was a huge scandal to the Pharisees. Yep. Uh, you know, who, who said you could do this? And so, uh, uh, and so this is, is all in the context there of baptism. So, so this is, is a fairly clear text. And from it, we, we, we learn of the necessity of baptism, that the Church baptizes, yeah. uh, that, that Christians are baptized. But we do... Um, uh, we know that faith comes through hearing, and hearing by the Word of God, yep. which is how baptism saves us, because it's the Word of God bound up to it. And if the Lord so arranges things that a Christian dies before they're able to come to the gift of baptism, or um, or someone comes to faith through hearing the Word uh-huh. and never has a chance to obtain the gift of baptism, or we, we just had this um, recently that a child is uh, dies in the womb before it even comes to... Uh, is able to be born. Uh, we don't despair that because baptism um, was missing, that there that salvation was also missing. Mm-hmm. So there's so there's two things that the church is. Uh, Augustine said this uh, apparently. He says it's not the lack of baptism that damns, but the despising of it. <laughs> right on. So so that's one thing. And then the other is um, uh, we, we we talk about while well, we talk about the necessity of baptism, and I don't know this. I got to think about this a little bit more. But this has been a common way that church fathers have talked about it as well. While we talk about the necessity of baptism, we don't talk about the absolute necessity of baptism. Right. That the Lord has bound the church to baptism, but he hasn't bound himself to it. He can save through the word apart from water if he wants to. Now, now that's a distinction I want to make. I want to highlight that. Okay? The church is bound to baptize. God isn't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah, I, that's right. I think that is a great distinction. And uh, and so the, so the idea is is that within the Christian Church, you know, I would argue that a non-baptized Christian is an, is is a weird animal and um in is an oxymoron, you know. Right. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Lord. I mean, this is, we have these commands for baptism uh, everywhere in the scriptures. I mean, it's not. Um, I mean, it's not as if it's a surprise, you know, kind of hidden in a footnote somewhere. Hey, right. you should be baptized. Right. You know. Right. Uh, and now, uh, this is the other thing: is that uh, there's a lot of debate at right now uh, because the Duck Dynasty guys, their Church of Christ. Now, not yeah. not every member of the Church of Christ. Uh, you know, there's different streams within the big, broad umbrella that's called Church of Christ. Not every church within the Church of Christ says uh, that you have to be baptized to be saved, and by and you have to be baptized by them. I, I think they all pretty much say that that uh, baptism is necessary for salvation. And there are certain branches within the Church of Christ that say not only do you have to be baptized, but we're not even going to recognize anybody else's baptism. And so, um, I think because Duck Dynasty has kind of pushed the necessity of baptism debate up to the front, I think we're getting lumped in with the Church of Christ. Yeah, yeah, I, I lost some friends that way, because we, because there is this heresy that, so you take, you take adult baptism, uh, you, 
you take believer's baptism, as it's commonly called, and that is that first you accept Christ, and then you submit to baptism as your first act of obedience. Uh-huh. You take that, which has made baptism into a work, and then you make it necessary for salvation, uh, which is what they've done. Now yep. you have clearly made a works requirement for salvation, and yep. it's wrong. But the, So this is, I mean, the, the first thing that we have to say is, look, baptism is not a work. If we were teaching that baptism was a work that was necessary for salvation, we would be denying the gospel, the death of Jesus, and everything. Yep, I agree. But, but, but that is not at all what we're saying, nor is it what the Bible teaches about baptism. Right. Now, let me, let me, let me stir the pot here a little bit. There, um, recently, uh, you know, a very popular radio guy uh, found a quote in Luther. Uh, are, you, are you talking about table talk radio? No, 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 no. I'm talking about somebody else, <clears throat> an evangelical guy. Okay, he found he found a a quote in Luther, from, you know, from the uh, the book "What Luther Said," which is basically kind of a bunch of out of context, you know, statements made by Luther on different topics, and um and he cited this particular quote from Luther to ask the question. It was Luther a Lutheran, you know, as if, you know, the idea is, you know, because he's done other programs where he's asked the question is, was Calvin a Calvinist by today's Calvinist standard? You know, what, you know, and which I think is a fair question, but yeah. he, he finds this quote and then he's basically kind of, you know, pitting Luther against the Lutherans as if somehow, you know, Luther taught differently regarding baptism than what the Lutherans believe, kind of ignoring the fact that Luther wrote the small catechism and the large catechism and those are in our confessions. And I right. think he correctly summarized scripture. But let me read the quote to you. And because uh, and, I think it relates here. Um, because Luther ag- agrees with you that, uh, you know, that there are people who are saved. Apart from baptism, here's what he says. A person can believe, although he is, uh, he is not baptized, for baptism is no more than an external sign to remind us of the divine promise. If one is able to get baptism, it is well. Then one should take it, for no one should despise it. But if one were not able to get it or were denied it, he is nonetheless not damned, provided that he believes the gospel. For where the gospel is, their baptism also is, and everything a Christian needs, because damnation follows upon no sin except unbelief alone. This is also the reason why the Lord says, He that believeth not shall be damned. He does not say he that is not baptized, but is silent about baptism, for baptism is useless without faith. It is like a letter to which seals are attached, but in which nothing has been written. Therefore, he who has the signs, which we call the sacraments, and not faith, has seals only, seals attached to a letter without any writing. Yeah, yeah. No, that's exactly right. So, so I mean, if you're arguing, uh, whatever you're arguing against, if you're not arguing against that, you're not arguing against the illusion doctrine. I mean, that's what... That's exactly right. Right. I mean, because, see, and this is the problem. I mean, it's just about near impossible for us to take the question of necessity and bind it up with the gospel. I mean, we hear the word necessity, and it becomes a law now. So... So that uh, so that the idea to be baptized, you should be baptized becomes um, it, it, it turns into a commandment that condemns us. And yeah. never in, in the world is baptism supposed to be bound up with the law. It's just pure gospel. Yep. It's pure grace. Yep. So so we take that the idea of the necessity of baptism. You know, it's, it's it's almost looking for like the the lowest common denominator, which is which is crazy. I mean, we. Uh, what is the minimum that has to happen for us to be saved? You know, and and someone says, 
well, look, all you have to do is believe in Jesus. And then we say, well, you should be baptized. And someone says, look, you're, now you're adding laws on top of God's grace. No, it's adding grace upon grace. Right. This, this, and this is how Jesus deals with us. He says, look, here, here's my forgiveness in my word. Here's my forgiveness in the absolution. Go and forgive someone their sins, and they're forgiven. Mm-hmm. Here's my forgiveness in baptism. Here's my forgiveness in the Lord's Supper. Take and eat. Uh, this is my body given for you. They, take and drink. This is the cup of the New Testament shed for you for right. the remission of sins. Right. So, so Jesus binds up the forgiveness of sins to all these sorts of things. And, and we say, was well, baptism necessary for salvation? Well, isn't just believing the Word enough? And the question that we have to bring to that is, why are you interested in the in kind of a minimum standard of, of, of grace. Right. Like, I want to get the least amount of forgiveness possible from Jesus. Well, Jesus is not interested in that. I mean, he will just keep the forgiveness coming your whole life. Right. He comes after you with his mercy. Right. And it's like the psalm says, my cup runneth over. And <laughs> and so the idea here is, is that I, I got to tell you, with the complete unanimous overwhelming grace upon grace you know that i see being applied to me as a sinner it's it, it, it's taken a long time but i'm finally to the point where i'm convinced it's like okay god you know what i'm absolutely convinced you have it out for me you want me to be saved you actually love me <laughs> that was a, it's a it's a great thing to i remember having that thought uh, coming out of evangelicalism and, and then becoming a Lutheran and trying to track along with Lutheran teaching. And all of a sudden I realized that it's not like in order to be saved, it's going to be me fighting against God. I right. Mean, that's, that's what I thought. I mean, it's like, okay, i got to do all this stuff. And God's, you know, it, God is like my... Uh, it's like my soccer coach, and he's in its tryout day, and and maybe I'm going to make it, maybe I'm not. He's going to give me all these tasks to jump through, and if I can complete it, no, no, this is wrong. Uh, Jesus wants me to say, be saved, probably more than I want myself to be saved. I mean, he is, gonna, and he's going to do it. Yeah, no, I, in fact, I'm convinced it's not even a probably. Uh, it's an absolute. I mean, God is, if, pardon the term, but God is hell bent on saving me. I'm going to baptize you. I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to I'm going to give you promise after promise. Ugh. Yeah, and even if you fall seven times in a day, I'm going to pick you right back up. All right, we are going to pause my uh, interview there with uh, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller in order to pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break, when we come back, balance of this interview with Pastor Brian Wolfmuller on baptism, and then hour number two, a... Uh, sermon review standard stuff stay tuned we'll be right back because only good theology leads people to heaven you're listening to fighting for the faith you're listening to pirate christian radio we'll be taking your false doctrine now
Okay, then, uh, Mr. Haas. The results of the test have come back. What are they, Doc? Uh, not good. That's what. What do you mean? What's wrong with me? Where do you want me to start? I- is that all mine? That and the seven other stacks of paperwork just like it. Oh, dear. Oh, dear, indeed. I guess we can start off with the good news. Okay. You don't have cancer. Oh, thank God. Funny that you'd say that. Why? Now, don't get ahead of yourself. As I said before, you don't have cancer. And that's about it for the good news. Uh, Moving on. This here is an x-ray of your esophagus and your stomach. Wait! What are those? Please, try to stay calm while I explain the prognosis. For the sake of contrast, I've included the same type of x-ray from a healthy patient. Oh, no. Oh, no, indeed. Now, I've seen my fair share of cases like these, but nothing is ever compared to what you've got going on. Uh, are those... Yes. Those are pentagrams emblazoned on the unprotected skin of your esophagus. Is that the reason For that... your heartburn? Oh, no. Not even close. If you look closely, we've identified this black lump in your stomach as brimstone. That is the cause of your heartburn. And no, Nexium won't fix it. How can this be happening to me? Well, to put it simply... You've contracted a religiously transmitted disease. But how? Well, there are many ways. One of the more common ways is to preach heresy and to openly accept the teaching of the devil and his ways. But, 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 but... Oh, trust me, this is only the tip of the iceberg. Do you know how much sulfur we found in your colon? You found what in my what? Sulfur. You see, it's normal to find in some of the victims of possession. But you were something extraordinary. We found three whole pounds of it in there. Three pounds? Don't even get me started on the pH of your blood, though. Hoo-wee! There was some nasty stuff. Melted right through our equipment when one vial exploded in the centrifuge. Yes, sir. You've got yourself a really nasty religiously transmitted disease. What am I going to do? For starters, I would stop spewing those lies you pass off as sermons down at your church. That should start to alleviate some of the burning sensations. I- On that note, I would suggest some good old-fashioned expository teaching because the only thing that's going to fight off this disease is the Word of God. I can't believe what I'm hearing! That's obvious. You certainly won't be able to unless the Father himself draws you. There's got to be an easier way! i got to ask you, have you considered baptism? What's that got to do with anything? Oh, I don't know. Circumcision of the heart not done by human hands for the forgiveness of your sins. Ring any bells? You're not being helpful! Well, if you don't want to do any of that, I guess all I can do is fill out your prescriptions. Here you go. What? What's a three-month supply of vision lack supposed to do? Oh, trust me. You're gonna need it. Have you purchased your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? 
If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Long-time Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember... A portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. And thank you for your support. Cowabunga. Hello, I'm Brandon House of WorldViewRadio.com. WorldViewRadio.com is the world's premier biblical worldview online radio network. And now you can take it with you on the go with our free app that you can download free of charge at WorldViewWeekend.com forward slash APP. That's WorldViewWeekend.com forward slash APP. And you'll hear the daily and weekly radio programs by people like T.A. McMahon of The Brian Call, Chris Rosebro of Fighting for the Faith, Usama Dakdok on The Truth About Islam, Noise of Thunder with Chris Pinto, Justin Peters and the Justin Peters Program, Crosstalk, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and Prophecy Today, Jesse Johnson with the Bible Teaching Program of Emmanuel, Dr. John Whitcomb, and Mike Gendron of Proclaiming the Gospel Radio, as well as Carl Tycrib with Forcing Change Radio. All of these biblically-based radio programs are available free of charge at worldviewradio.com and through our free app at worldviewweekend.com forward slash app. Biblical Worldview Radio that you can take with you on the go. No, 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 no. All right, we're back. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church. It's true. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says Donate. The other says Join Our Crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to fighting for the faith and then send it to post office box 508 fishers indiana zip code 46038 and let me thank you for your support we truly cannot do what we do here at fighting for the faith without it all right here is the balance of my interview earlier today with pastor brian wolfmiller where we field uh, a lot of the common questions uh, follow-up questions uh, that came as a result of last week's episode of Fighting for the Faith on the biblical uh, case for the Lutheran doctrine of uh, baptism. Here is uh, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. Next question here. I think we kind of, you know, th- we've answered that question. Is it absolutely necessary? You know, and, and the, other, the other questions that come, you know, from this, that's really the center point. You can work it out from there. Um, yep. So here, here's the, I think, kind of the, the very good question that w- we need to talk about. Is every baptized person saved or regenerated and here's one that's related to it okay a a real life situation my niece was baptized as a lutheran by the way as a baby but she has no faith 
She thinks homosexuality is not a sin, shows no fruit of a believer, doesn't read her Bible. How do you explain somebody like that? In fact, let me let me do something better. I'm going to raise the stakes, okay? I know for a fact that Brian McLaren, the, the emergent heretic, that he's baptized. I know that Patricia King, the uh, the wacko, charismatic, uh, false prophetess, I know she's baptized. Rob Bell is baptized. Tony Jones, Doug Paget are baptized. I know that all of these heretics are baptized. So uh, what do we Lutherans uh, have to say about baptism since all of those guys are clearly, they've been brought to the waters of baptism, and they are, they're flat out attacking and undermining the entire Christian faith. Right. Uh, this is a question of apostasy, and we and we have. I mean, we we have it running through the scriptures. And and by the way, everybody has to deal with it, not just the Lutherans. Yep. I mean, uh, um, <laughs> if you're a Calvinist, if you're an Arminian, if you're a Charismatic, or whatever, you you everyone has the question of the apostate. How, how is it that a person looks like they're a Christian and then? now later is not a christian mm-hmm. uh so someone gives their life to christ and then they fall away or someone's baptized and they fall away or someone speaks in tongues and they fall away or whatever and they fall away now the calvinists give the answer that well they aren't the elect and that was a sham faith right you can't lose your salvation uh and so if it looks like you had salvation you're not quite sure until you make it to the end yeah I mean, there's but, no way this no. straight up we got a problem because we're saying that baptism is efficacious that it's a washing of regeneration. So we've got people who've been baptized who are flat-out apostates, heretics, and enemies of the Christian faith. Um, right. So where does the fault lie? Does it lie with baptism and God's promises? What's, you know, where's the fault? <laughs> yeah. No, bapti- the, the, the great verse for this uh, that I go back to, and I said, I want to flip over to it so that I can read it to you, and I've got to track it down. But uh, the idea is that when the Lord delivers his promise to us in baptism, that he is speaking the truth. And yet it is possible in this life, uh, sadly, to reject that truth uh, and to fall away from it. Um, And especially, I mean, this is why we have warning after warning in the scriptures that that, that we abide in Christ. Right. Uh, that we continue to rely on His grace. Mm-hmm. That we hear the Word of God, uh, and that we come to His supper. Uh, that we that we listen to the preaching and we don't despise it, because the devil, like Jesus says, uh, like the bird that's sitting, you know, on the low branches waiting for the seed to be thrown on onto the path. The devil is always there to snatch up, uh, to snatch up the Lord's word, to draw us away from the the Lord's truth. So we have the sad uh, but true and stern warning from Jesus and from all of the scriptures right. that it is possible to lose our faith. Right, and I would now, I would point you to a clear passage like Galatians five that says to you know where Paul says to the Galatians, "You who would be justified by the law, you have been alienated from Christ and you have fallen from grace." Yeah, oh, that's right. And in fact, there's, so there's a couple of ways that we fall from grace. That one is a stunning one because. Because Paul is saying there, look, if, if, you're, if you're justified by faith, if, in other words, you become righteous by believing the promise, and now you want to keep being righteous by keeping the law, you've fallen from the Lord's mercy. So, there, so there's a way that we fall away from the faith by being too good. I mean, you know what I mean by that, in that we start trusting in our own works. Yep. There's also the falling away from the faith by, by living in open and unrepentant sin. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, 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 the idea that the Holy Spirit can, can dwell in the house with, a, with an open and unrepentant sinner. Uh, this is also a, you know, a way to, 
uh, so continued and unrepentant sin also drives us away from the Lord and His Word. Right. Uh, so these are the two ways that we fall off the cart. Uh, and, and so the Scripture warns us about this. But this does not, this does not invalidate baptism. Uh, let God be true, and every man a liar. This is the text that I'm hunting around for. It's right around Romans 2, 3. Uh, and this is true in our baptism. When God baptizes us, it's true, no matter if we believe it or not. So the example would be of the prodigal son, who is the son of the father. And go, he goes away and he lives his life in, in wasteful living, you know, uh, squandering his inheritance and whatever. And he, he has no benefit of being a son of the father. And yet he is still his son. Now, he, he's gone away and squandered all his father's goods, and he wants to come back, and, and he says, now I'll go back to my father, but I'll go back and be his slave. Right. You know? And he goes back, and, he, and, and his father will have none of it. He, he says, look, you're my son. He gives him the ring and the robe and all of this sort of stuff. And this, and this is how it is. So, so for those unbelievers, uh, or those that have fallen away from baptism, they, they are like the prodigal who, uh, who's living in the foreign country, squandering the father's goods. They are still a child of God, but they have no benefit of it. In, in fact, no benefit in this life and no benefit in the life to come. Mm-hmm. But when they come back, there's no need to be reborn into the father's house. Right. The, the father says, look, your name, the, the gift that I gave you in your birth still stands. And it's the same is true uh, for, for the Christian that's wandered away from the faith. They don't need to be rebaptized. They, what, what repentance is, is turning back to their baptism, right. turning back to the promises that God already gave them. That, that all these Bible promises that the that are bound up to baptism, like the, when, when we're baptized, we've put on Christ, or we, we're adopted into His family, or uh, we've, we've died with Christ, that we might also live with Him. All of these great promises of baptism, to repent is to return to those promises. Okay. So, so then the person who asked, well, listen, I was baptized as an infant, but growing up I never had faith. After becoming a Christian, and this is how they're talking about it, as an adult I was eventually rebaptized. For those of us who were baptized prior to faith in Christ and lived in unrepentant sin, but later repented, do you advocate a second baptism? And your answer is no. No, no. There's no such thing as a second baptism. I mean, Ephesians chapter 4, one Lord, one faith, one, one God baptism. and Father, one baptism. Right. Yeah, but what, one, if, what, if, what if the guy who baptized me, you, you, we find out later he was sleeping with the church secretary? I mean, this is great, because uh, this is an ancient controversy in the Church, too, called the Donatist Controversy, where uh, during the times of martyrdom and persecution, they would go after the pastors first. Just remember that, pastors. they come after you first. And, uh, and so some of the pastors would forsake the faith for the sake of their lives. And uh, Donatus, this fellow, said, hey, if, they, if, that, if you were baptized by one of those guys, you have to be rebaptized. If you were... You know, whatever sacraments you receive from them are invalid. And, 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 and St. Augustine sat there and argued convincingly and said, no, no, the baptism has it, and the sacraments have their validity not based on the piety, either, uh, the piety or the faith of the person giving them or receiving them. They have their authority. Uh, their efficacy comes only from God's Word. Right. So if you're baptizing in the name of the Father, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the name that matters is not Pastor Wolfmuller or whoever baptized you. The name that matters is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay. And so that, and that gives the gift of baptism. Now, okay. So now somebody comes to you and they say, "Listen, uh, Pastor Wolfmuller, I've been listening to Table Talk Radio, and I've got all these Table Talk Radio points that I want to cash in." And <laughs> 
and yeah. uh, and they say, but listen, you know, this but, is a I, hypothetical. Yeah, right? a hypothetical. Yeah, 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 I'm trying to really paint a broad picture here, and so they want to cash in all these, uh, uh, you know, tabletop radio points and want to become a member of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. But then they reveal to you, uh, yeah, but listen, I was baptized in the Roman Catholic Church as an infant. Um, yeah, uh, and we all know that they've anathematized the gospel. So, um, yeah, I, you're, you're probably going to need to rebaptize me. Right. Uh, we don't. We don't. Uh, the Roman Catholic, in fact, this is one of these things where um, our friends, the Baptists, for example, will rebaptize if you were baptized as an infant because they don't think it's a valid baptism. What makes baptism valid is the, is the doctrine, the name of the Holy Trinity that the Lord is, Jesus has bound up to it. Right. So even if somebody has a false idea of baptism, uh, which the Catholics do and the Baptists do and just about everyone else does, <laughs> but they have a right understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity, then that baptism is valid. Okay. So it is one of these things where Jesus has instituted baptism, and the, and the, the thing that he has bound up to the efficacy of baptism is the confession of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right. Now, now if someone is baptized, for example, in a, in a Mormon church where the Trinity is not confessed, in fact, is denied, then they they uh, they would be baptized. Now, but look, it's not. It's never a rebaptism. Okay. Because what they got the first time wasn't a baptism. Right. Okay. So in a, in a, you know something like the Mormon Church or the United Pentecostal Church, we would baptize them, and it's not a rebaptism because that baptism wasn't even a baptism um, because the God they're invoking doesn't even exist. So, right. Okay. That's exactly right. All right. So, uh, so here, here's the here, here's kind of a I'll throw an oddball question out at you real quick. Um, well, it sounds to me, Pastor Wolfmuller, that you know you're saying as long as the right words are said, baptism works ex opera operato. <laughs> How do you? That's an interesting thing because that has to do with another question as well, and that is, for example, does every baptism result in regeneration? Now. You, you, you know that question. In other words, is baptism, uh, is baptism, does it always work? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, the, and the answer there is that when the Lord, Jesus in his mercy is always resistible. It's one of the characteristics of Jesus coming to us in kindness. Uh, so Jesus, when he came in the flesh, was resistible. Uh-huh. And Jesus, when he comes in his word, is resistible. And Jesus, when he comes in, in baptism in the Lord's Supper, is resistible. I mean, you can resist just by not even going there to be baptized. I suspect that this is true, that Jesus is resistible. Now, how it is that Jesus is resistible, and our human will can only resist him because it's sinful. Mm-hmm. Paul says, no one seeks after God knows him. And yet in the midst of that, by the Word and the work of the Holy Spirit, the Lord changes our resistance are resisting into faith uh, is, a, is a mystery, the right. mystery of conversion. Okay. But we do say that the sacraments are resistible. Uh, but we, uh, so that's the one thing. And then the other thing that comes up in there is this, this question of ex opere operata, that is, from the working of the work, from the doing of the thing. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and the Catholic Church had this idea that the, that the sacraments just are kind of a conveying of grace. And they had this idea of grace as a substance, etc. So, and we and we don't understand that because we we understand that the benefit of baptism is bound up to the Word of God. And it's always the Word. When we talk about the means of grace, we're really only talking about one thing, and that is God's Word, His Word, and His specific Word, His Word of promise, His Word of forgiveness for, because of the death of Jesus. That that is the gospel in, in its 
that word has been bound up by Jesus to water, and that's what we call baptism. But the benefit is given to us in the promise, and because it's given to us in the promise, we do not have that benefit apart from faith. Right, and I mean, faith, faith grasps, is what believes the promise. Right, faith grasps onto the promise itself. Right, that's right. Okay. So, so that um, so that apart from faith, uh, baptism has no benefit. I mean, except for maybe you know, if you if you have a dirty forehead, it might clean it off. But that's no benefit at all. Yeah, that's a very so temporal we, benefit. Right, but then see, here's the other thing, though, is what, what is that it, this leads very quickly into the nature of faith, which I think is where probably where the biggest disagreement uh, is, because uh, because people will say, well, how can a baby have any benefit from baptism? Because after all, a baby can't believe. <laughs> and this this is almost assumed now that babies can't. That for some reason, whatever definition people have of faith, right. it excludes babies. And this is very unbiblical. In fact, you know, I think Chris, ten years ago, whenever we became friends, it was it was over this article that uh, infant bapt, uh, infant faith, a list of scriptures. You remember yeah, that? Yeah, I remember that. We covered. In fact, we, that was one of the early articles we covered here at Fighting for the Faith. It's so important because the Bible's definition of faith does not exclude infants, but in fact uh, extols infants as the paradigm of faith. Right. You know, unless you have faith as a little child. It's and, and, and most people say, unless you have faith as a little child, which remember, of course, they, they, these babies can't have faith. I mean, that makes no sense at all. So if you're working with a bad definition of faith, which is namely trust in the promise, Right. Uh, then, then everything starts to fall apart. And, and, and yet you got that passage, you know, uh, talking about how at my mother's womb you, 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 know, you taught me to trust you and to sing your praises. You know, all that kind of stuff is in Scripture, um, which kind of makes me worry a little bit. Okay, when somebody has a definition of faith that says an infant can't have faith, what I'm worried about is that, that immediately my Pelagian radar starts pinging. <laughs> Yeah, you. That's right. You know, I mean, so it, it, you see it already, though. I mean, if someone's going to turn baptism into a work, then they're going to turn faith into a yep. work, also. Yeah. So faith is this is the one thing I've got to do, and I can't do it until I'm of a mature enough state that I can comprehend particular things. Yeah, that's right. So when I mean, whenever our will plays a part in conversion, then you have to ask yourself, what is it that's actually being converted? <laughs> right, right. I mean, our wills are the object of conversion, not the uh, not the act, active thing that's converting us. Right, exactly. So my will is changed rather than the thing that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I see. And this is this will be the last question, real quick, and one that I didn't send you. Okay, um, babies. This this is a direct quote. Babies do not need to be baptized because when they're born, they're pure as the wind-driven snow. <laughs> Yeah, that's, you know, it really gets down to it. Whenever you see someone not baptizing a baby, you know that lurking behind them is a semi-Pelagian, someone who denies original sin. <laughs> yeah. And so, and so it could be that you have a crooked nature, but you're not accountable for that crooked nature until you reach a certain age that you can either act upon it or not act upon it, or kind of knowingly reflect upon your crooked nature. But right. no, 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 no. This is not the, what the Bible teaches about original sin. In sin, my mother conceives me. And, and with sin is guilt. It's not like you can have sin and not have guilt because of sin. So that you see in those who deny uh, baptism to babies, you see two ways of being saved. Either you believe in Jesus or you die before you reach the age of accountability. And, and that, I mean, talk about being saved by works. That, that's not even being saved by 
uh, because of what you've done. That's just being saved because of who you are. Yeah. And, and and that's really frightful. Yeah, and yet the wages of sin is death, and even our youngest infants die. Yeah. You know, yeah, that's right. So That's right. Oh. And there's a guilt, there's a pervasive guilt, and, and but... But but the, the the pervasiveness of our guilt and the and the Lord's punishment for it is is constantly overcome by the Lord's overflowing and, and abundant mercy. Yeah, yep, absolutely. All right, I think that answers our pastoral questions, kind of with a pastoral approach. But uh, uh, Pastor Wolfman, thank you for coming on Fighting for the Faith, and hopefully this will be a good resource for people. I'll see if I can dig up the link to your uh, article on infant faith and make that available as a download. Uh, not, not from the podcast feed, but uh, you know, on the website itself, attached to this uh, episode of Fighting for the Faith. Well, Chris, hey, thanks. Uh, thank you for having me, and thank you for all the work that you do. I mean, this is really great. Uh, you, more than anyone else, are on the front lines, uh, having having these conversations, and uh, I, I really appreciate it. Uh, keep up the good work. I, I will endeavor to do so. Thank you. All right. So, what'd you think? We're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to be reviewing a sermon from a seeker-driven church plant that I think preaches the kind of the standard evangelical teaching on baptism. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... Listening to Byron Christian Radio. Have you purchased your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Long-time Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. And thank you for your support. Cowabunga. Come in. What was I just doing, you might ask? Well, I just conquered the outer rim planet of Pico Pond with my trusty double-barreled nuclear plasma cannon. Well, I just did in this video game. 
But how is it possible for someone like myself to play 13 hours straight and not get a headache? It's quite simple, really. It's because I wear gunners. When I'm rocking these babies, I'm unstoppable. They're not limited to just games, mind you. Oh, no. I rock the spreadsheet, the PowerPoint, the word processor, and when that's all done, I hop my T-16 and fry me some toasters. If you want to get in on the action, then head over to piratechristianradio.com forward slash gunners. You gotta see it to believe it. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review time. We're going to pick a grassroots, garden-variety, evangelical, seeker-driven sermon on baptism. Ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Keystone Church in Keller, Texas. Brandon Thomas presiding. The name of the sermon we will be reviewing is entitled Why Baptism? I think it's a great example of the typical preaching and teaching that you will get in American evangelicalism on the topic of baptism. I will be providing biblical critique along the way, but I want you to notice something here. In Brandon Thomas's preaching, baptism becomes 100% law, and there's something very interesting that he's going to say along the way. He's going to ask the question, why baptism? And you know what he's going to say? I don't know. I think that's rather telling, but uh, I'm getting ahead of myself. So let me go ahead and kill the music, and without any further ado, here's Brandon Thomas, Keystone Church, Keller, Texas, and Why Baptism. All right. Well, welcome to Keystone Church. We are one church in two locations, so at North Fort Worth and here at Keller. Can we welcome all our guests big time? Can we do that, huh? That's right. That's right. Yes, we're so glad you're here, and uh, I'm Brandon. Uh, My wife and I started the church about eight years ago in our home, and uh, I've been on vacation. I went uh, down to Florida and had a great time. I've never been down to the panhandle of Florida. It's actually uh, the Gulf Coast, and uh, when I think Gulf Coast, I think Galveston, and this was a little different than Galveston. I didn't know this existed in America. Uh, I didn't know that you could go down to the Gulf Coast, and it would be sugar white sands and emerald green beautiful waters astounding has anybody ever been to that sand destin destin kind of area all right yeah north Fort Worth. yeah some of us have we're even a breaking into applaud here 
So, uh, you know, let me just tell you a little bit about my trip and uh, make make you hate me a little bit. Um, we had a great time. As I said, that I've never been down there before, so I didn't know what to expect. I'd seen some pictures. And so we get, we get in the family van. I'm a van man. We get in the family van, and we trekked it down. And, uh, you know, I mean, it was crazy. It was wild. And we unashamedly just plugged our kids into media for 14 hours. And uh, so Susan and I had some alone time there for a little bit, and uh, we had a great time. And and the greatest part was when we hit the beach. You know, there's something about water. There's just something about the beach. There's something about the ocean. You just want to get down to that beach. And so we get down, and we see the water, and it is astounding, the clarity, the beauty. And uh, a couple of those days, it was especially calm and, and serene. And so I was even able to, like, float in the middle of the ocean with my with a couple of my kids, and there we are floating. Isn't that great? It looks like we're in a pool. That's the ocean. It's crazy. And uh, I even taught Beck how to uh, pull a Darth Vader move and I captured it. You know, he was able to lift his sister into the air. Um, you know, that's called Vadering if you're into Instagram. He didn't really do that. She jumped. I took the picture. Okay. Just in case you didn't know. But yeah, so we did a little Vadering and um, young Jedi got her barely out of the water and uh, kind of cute, funny. But the really crazy part was one of these days, the, the, the waves were getting a little bigger and Beck is six and he'd never done the ocean before. And so he was a little tentative. I mean, there's, you know, the, the, the tug on your legs with the, with the toe and, and, uh, and the undercurrent. And then the waves are smashing and crashing and it tastes like salt. And it's just a little different. And he didn't really know what to do with that. He didn't know exactly what to do. And he was a little tentative. And I said, look, bud, I'm, I'm feeding into his masculinity. I'm, you know, getting his, turning up his wild at heart meter. And so I'm saying, man, what you need to do when the wave comes, you need to just punch it. You need to smash through the waves with everything you got. So there's back. <laughs> the little guy. Oh, it was so cute. And when he first started, you know, he would, he would do it for like, he did it for like an hour. Just You know, just pulling that. So cute, so cute. And uh, and the first couple, he would look at me like, did I do it right? And I'm like, you did it right, buddy. So sweet. Love the ocean. And it seems that many other people love it too because it was insane getting in and it was insane getting out. Going through Mobile, Alabama was, I mean, it was purgatory. It was horrible. Uh, the traffic, why? Because people want to get to the water. People want to get to the beach. I have a friend who lives on one of those coastal cities, and he wants to live on the on the canal. He wants to live on the waterway, the intercoastal. He wants to live on the water. What do we do in our backyards? Some of us, we create these little fountains. We have pools. I saw one of the Keystoners. They're all red-faced. I'm like, where have you been? They're like, backyard. You know, we want to get on the water, even if it's in the pool, backyard. Wherever we can get to, we want to get to the water. There's something about water. Some of us, we dream of one day having that lake house. We want to get to the water, or even just go to the lake. We want to get to the water. There's something about water. Well, what we learn is that when it comes to God, there's something 
about water. Now, this week, we're picking up on the series called Why. And my two buddies, uh, Trey and Ryan, were able to kick off the series for me as they answered a couple of the questions on why. And uh, I think I got to watch both of those messages. I thought they knocked the ball out of the park. What did you think, huh? It's unbelievable. Appreciate those guys. Unbelievable. And uh, so this summer, we have a lot of different episodes of series talks about answering some various different questions about why. We'll have some other guest speakers, and and I'll be bringing some of these messages as well about why, 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 why. And uh, what I want to answer today is why baptism. You know, if you if you're visiting Keystone Church for the very first time today, or if you've been coming for just a month or two, one of the things you discover about Keystone is we love baptism. I mean, you turn around, you look everywhere, and, and you see this huge pool out front, and you see, you know, people getting baptized. Maybe if you came a little early and you saw in the last service people getting baptized, you see people right outside of North Fort Worth, people, the pool's right there ready to be baptized. Uh, you see uh, in the video during the song, you see people getting baptized coming out of that water. And this isn't just for today. We do this all the time. Uh, on any given weekend, people will be baptized. And you may walk away from Keystone, and you may say, man, this church loves baptism. Why? <laughs> Why? What's, what's the big deal about baptism? Why are you so fanatical? Why do you love it so much? Is it a denomination thing? Is it, is it, a, is it tr- a tradition thing? Um, what is it? What is the deal with baptism? Well, I want to talk about that today. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to look, we will look at two stories in the New Testament And then I want to answer some questions. So there's two accounts in the New Testament that we'll visit, and then we're going to answer some questions. So let's just jump right in. Why water? Why baptism? Acts chapter 8, verse 26 is the first of these stories. We see this is after. Now, I got to pause right here, and I need to remind you all, if you haven't already listened to my lectures, how to not be schnookered and bamboozled and all that kind of stuff, go back into the archives of Fighting for the Faith and listen to them and download the, uh, the handout on proper biblical hermeneutics. This comes into play here. And it, when we talk about proper biblical hermeneutics, there's theological principles that come into play. Okay. Um, in specifically, let me, in fact, let me read to you these principles and we'll kind of work through this. And so you can kind of see what's going on here. Uh, when we talk about the theological principles, when it comes to sound biblical exegesis, and this is beyond just context, context, context. Uh, number one, because the scripture is of divine origin and is verbally inspired word of God, it is wholly without consistency of thought or speech, without contradiction, without the slightest error in the original manuscripts. The Bible is the inscripturated word of God as, and as such presents the truth in ordinary language in all matters in which it treats. The kind of truth that the Bible claims for itself is correspondence, uh, the correspondence to reality or the correspondence theory of truth. Principle number two, scripture, not human reason, personal feeling, church, or tradition is the sole source and norm of true doctrine in the sphere of religion and theology. And this is the principle of sola scriptura. And principle number three actually works with principle number one. It's scripture interprets scripture and less clear or plain passages of scripture must be interpreted in light of the clearer passages. So the idea is this, is oftentimes people go wrong in their... hermeneutics in their exegesis, in their understanding of the Bible, because they let less clear or off-topic verses govern um, a, a particular 
uh, doctrine. And so as a result of it, it becomes an error. And what happens is, is that when the less clear is put in, you know, over the clear passage, oftentimes it creates a contradiction in what God's word says. So what you're looking for is you're looking for a harmony of all of the passages on a particular doctrine working together in a way that they don't obliterate each other or create contradictions. That's the idea. So the the idea is you don't want you want you don't want fuzzy passages interpreting un, uh, uh, clear passages. That's just a a, a a bad way of doing hermeneutics. But then here's the order of clear interpretation. Okay, the Old Testament must be interpreted interpreted by the New. So the idea here is is that the New uh, gives us the proper understanding of the Old Testament, the Gospels must be interpreted by the epistles. Now, this is important, and this not only applies to the Gospels, but all of the historical narratives. Here's the idea. The Gospels record the historic events of our redemption, the incarnation, life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ, but by themselves, historic events are not sufficient. We need an authoritative word that tells us the true significance or theological significance of those events. For instance, if a man thinks he can look at historical events out of his own head and interpret what what those events means he puts himself in the place of God. Take the historic fact of the resurrection, for example. It is not for us to presume that the re- what the resurrection means. The epistles spell out to us what it means, and he who goes beyond what is interpreted in the epistles is fabricating a doctrine out of his head, out of his own head, or passing on uh, what somebody else has fabricated out of his head. So the idea here is is that historical narrative. Now, it's not that historical narrative doesn't contain didactic teaching. It does, okay? But you have to distinguish that. So if I were walking down uh, uh, one of the the, uh, streets or the roads heading into Jerusalem on the day when Jesus was crucified, I would see the three crosses. I would see Jesus in the middle, and I would, you know, I I would basically see a normal Roman, uh, you know, crucifixion going on. Um, in and of itself, just walking by it, I can't figure out what any of the theological significance of what is happening uh, there is. I can't tell you what it is because to my eyes, it looks like, well, just any old Roman execution. It's a Roman crucifixion. So I need clear passages which are found in the epistles that didactically spell out the theology of those historic uh, historic narratives so that I can understand the theological significance and rightly teach what those historical events mean. Okay, the incidental must be interpreted by the systematic. Now, this rule applies to the proper reading of any literature. It is common sense, but how hard is it to use common sense when we are so anxious to prove our point? For example, the heart of all biblical doctrine is the great doctrine of justification by grace. For Christ's sake, through faith. But there are two books in the Bible, Romans and Galatians, which present this doctrine systematically, and they do it also in the perspective of sacred history, the promised Abraham giving of the law. Uh, and common sense should teach us to build our understanding about justification by going to the places where the subject and all the ramification of it, ramifications of it are treated systematically. Now, <clears throat> all of this is to kind of get to the point here, and you're going to notice something here. Brandon Thomas is going to use two passages of Scripture to talk about why baptism, but neither passage contains a teaching portion or a theological teaching on the historical events that they record. Now, like I said, historical narrative can be used um, if it contains a teaching portion or a, a, a teaching that gives us the theology. Okay, So we've got a problem here. As you're listening to this, 
Pay close attention to what he's going to do. He's going to read two historical narratives. And the second one we are going to dismiss out of hand because of another passage of Scripture that clearly deals with a theological problem with what he's doing. In other words, I'm going to go to a a section of the book of Acts, which for the most part is historical narrative, but also contains didactic theological teaching in it. And we're going to use that theological didactic teaching in the book of Acts to eliminate the second passage that he's going to and basically rule it out of bounds regarding Christian baptism. I know that seems kind of a little bold to say up front, but pay attention because we're dealing with how to rightly understand hermeneutics. And note here, baptism becomes all law, and he doesn't go to any of the passages where the promises are associated with baptism. Let's continue. After Jesus had paid the ultimate price, died for our sin, did the unthinkable, did what only a God could do, conquered death, came back to life to give us new life. He had spent many, many days preaching and teaching to hundreds of people, proving and authenticating his resurrection, and then going to be at the right hand of the Father. Then you see the church mobilizing. You see people like us, people who believe in Jesus, going out and telling people about Jesus. And so one of these guys, his name was Philip. Philip was one of the apostles. In Acts chapter 8, verse 26, it says, As for Philip, an angel of the Lord said to him, Go south down the desert road that runs from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and he met the treasurer of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Kendake, the queen of Ethiopia. The eunuch had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and he was now returning. Seated in his carriage, he was reading aloud from the book of the prophet Isaiah. And the Holy Spirit said to Philip, go over and walk along beside the carriage. And so Philip ran over and heard the man reading from the prophet Isaiah. And Philip asked, do you understand what you're reading? So this wealthy, powerful, influential man is reading one of the books in the Old Testament called the book of Isaiah. And it's a book of prophecies about Jesus. And so Philip says, do you understand what you're reading? And the man replied in verse 31, how can I, unless someone instructs me? And he urged Philip to come up into his carriage and sit with him. Let me just time out real quick. Let me just take take a moment and just point something out. Any given weekend at Keystone Church, we prepare for three basic people. Every single weekend, we prepare like you're creating a meal. We create the meal for three people. Uh, the first type of person is someone who is checking out the whole God thing, just like this power power broker in the story that I've just mentioned, just like this governmental official, this power broker, kind of seeking out God. You know, this guy, he had just been to Jerusalem, but he still had a lot of questions. He had worshiped in the temple, but he still had a lot of questions. He's reading the Bible, but he has a ton of questions. He's not there yet. He hasn't crossed the line of faith. And at Keystone Church, we believe that it's possible that up to a third of the room on any given week. Okay, now I got to point this out. It is extremely presumptuous of Brandon Thomas to say that the Ethiopian eunuch doesn't have faith. The reason why is because he's a worshiper going in, who went to Jerusalem. He bought an Isaiah scroll. What we, and the only thing we can get from this text is that he doesn't understand what he's reading in Isaiah. It doesn't mean that he doesn't have faith. So understand, at this point, the new covenant is complete, and that's the thing that they're out there pro- preaching and proclaiming. And this Ethiopian eunuch 
is not now aware of the of you know the old covenant's end and the new covenant's beginning and so he it's fully within the possibility within the realm of plausibility that he believes in and trusts in Yahweh that he believes in God um but he's reading a passage of scripture that he doesn't understand okay and he's reading from Isaiah 53 that i think is that we can say safely but to say that he hasn't crossed the line of faith yet is actually presumptuous and may not even be able to be um, validated from the text itself. So already Brandon Thomas is reading something into the text, which is never, ever, ever wise to do. We continue. Or maybe just people that have come out of curiosity checking out the whole God thing. And that's why every single weekend we applaud you, we celebrate you, we welcome you to Keystone Church. And that's part of our heart is we love that seat of seeking. We love the people who are trying to figure it out. And we've seen many, many people, one signature away from signing the divorce papers, come here as their Hail Mary to try to save their marriage. We've seen many, many marriages saved here at Keystone. We see people that have gone through some kind of tragedy and they're looking for some answers and they're turning to the Lord. And they come to Keystone and say, man, man, where's some answers here? Uh, People just seeking, maybe even just curious or just came upon the invitation of a friend. And you come. And you're checking it out, but you have you wouldn't qualify yourself as someone who has crossed into into faith. Okay, so that's the first chair. The second chair are those who have found life in Christ, but only just recently. You know, new to this whole thing, you've crossed the line of faith. You prayed and invited Christ into your life, but this is brand new. I mean, it's totally new, and it's a new experience, and you're learning new things. And that may be a couple of weeks old, maybe a couple of months old, or a couple of years old, but this is brand new to you. And you're checking it out and you're learning new things and God's showing you new things and you're, you're growing in new ways and we prepare it just for you. And then the third chair are for people like me, which is maybe the smallest group here at Keystone Church and those that have been Keystoners for decades. I, I, I became a Keystoner. I mean, I became a Christian, a Christ follower over 30 years ago. And there's, there's some of us here at Keystone Church that have been Christ followers for decades. And so we definitely prepare uh, the table for you as well. So those three chairs, well, let me just for a second, just brief second, talk to the two chairs of Christ followers, those that have been Christ followers for a while, like myself, and those who've been Christ followers for a short period of time. Let me just say one word. Notice in the first story, Philip was positioned perfectly to make a difference in this powerful person's life. And let it be um, uh, an echo to us. Let it be a make a difference. He preached the gospel to him. It's a lot more than just making a difference. To our hearts that you are only one choice away from leading someone to a brand new life. If you're a Christ follower, you are one decision away from helping someone find their brand new life. And what do I mean by that? What's the choice, Brandon? What's the choice to help bless someone else? What does that mean? What is that choice? And the choice is that I choose to be on mission. I choose today to be on mission. Today, I choose, I determine, God may my life some way help someone else. But you have to predetermine that. We get stuck in our methods. We get stuck in our routines. We get stuck in our own flows. We get busy. We get stressed out. And it's very difficult to just think, hey, I'm going to be faithful every minute of the day. No, you've got to put on what I call the God goggles. 
You got to put on your ministry eyes to say, God, would you help me see people as you see them? Would you help me be someone who will reach out and help someone else? God, today I predetermine that if you cross my path with someone else, I'm going to do it. Now, some of you, that freaks you out because you look at Philip here and you say, oh, that's an apostle. That's a leader in the church. Brandon, sure, you could talk about this. You're a pastor. You've studied like ancient Greek and Hebrew and some of these languages. You studied the Bible for over 30 years. Man, I'm not equipped for that. Let me let you off the hook. You are totally equipped to invite somebody to church, to tell them about Jesus. And all you need, all you need is an experience with Jesus to be equipped to share that. All you need is an experience. That's all you need is an experience that you've had yourself for you to be able to help someone else. That's it. You don't need a ton of Bible knowledge. You don't need uh, a PhD in, in ancient languages. You don't have to be able to know all the big answers. All you need is an experience for you to be equipped to share Jesus with someone else because your experience is the one thing that you can't be talked out of. So don't let anybody punk you into the sidelines and rather than jumping onto the game of life, God wants your life. Okay, I'm point something out here. Okay. What's the basis of sharing Christ, your life experience rather than the announcement of Christ's life and death. Um, this is also completely backwards and not what the apostles did. They preached Christ, not themselves. And you got to decide today, today I'll be on mission today. I'll be on mission. And it could be anybody at Keystone church. Our passion, our heart, as it could be anybody. Now, when Philip was on mission, he said, okay, I'm going to walk over here. I don't know what this means. And then he sees someone in this incredible Bentley chariot. And this dude is uber wealthy, uber powerful. I'm sure Philip would say, man, I'm a pastor. I have nothing in common with this high roller. And don't notice he's inserting stuff into the text. Shouldn't be doing that. Predetermine the no for someone else on your journey of life change. The thing that will punk you out of major life change is you'd predetermine the no. They're not like me. They have it all together. I have nothing to share with them. Don't do that. Listen, at Keystone Church, we are passionate about reaching people in South Lake, West Lake, or somebody living in the van down by the lake. Anybody. I thought that was funny, too. Living in the van down by the river. It's all about water. Seriously, wherever you are, wherever, whatever, don't predetermine the no. You're not too big. They're not too low. You're not too high. You're not too wealthy. They're not too wealthy. You're not too powerful. They're not too popular. They're not too cute. Listen, never predetermine the no. God wants to put you in perfect position because here's what we learned. The second he got in that chariot, guess what happened? He realized he was the perfect person to talk to this guy. But he had to be on mission to find that out. He had to take a little risk to figure that out. He was the perfect person because Jesus had downloaded who he was through the interpretation of the prophets, and Philip knew all those answers. I mean, there was only a handful of people on the earth who could answer these questions. Philip was one of them. God put him at the perfect place at the perfect time, and God wants to do that for you as well. Do not predetermine the no. Don't be insecure. Get in the game. That's what God wants us to do. So let's keep forward. Okay, notice the emphasis is always on law, 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 the thing you got to do, the thing you got to do. You know, whereas the gospel is such good news, how could you not share it with other people? Let's go forward. In Acts chapter 8, verse 35. So 
Beginning with the same scripture, Philip told him the good news about Jesus. And as they rode along, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, there's some water. Why can't I be baptized? And he ordered the carriage to stop. And they went down into the water and Philip baptized him. Interesting episode in the Bible. So he hears about who Jesus was. He believes it for himself. He crosses the line of faith, and the next question this guy has is, why can't I be baptized right now? Philip, his answer was very important. He did not say, well, the reason you can't be baptized right now is because you haven't been through our membership class. You see, if you go through our membership class, then you could be baptized. He didn't say, you know what, let's turn the chariot back around. Let me walk you through the temple. Let me explain the theological significance of the temple and all the instruments. Let me help you understand theology a little better. Then you'll be ready to be baptized. He didn't do that. He didn't say, you know what, you need to memorize at least these three or four verses in the book of Romans. And if you can memorize these scriptures and understand them and explain it to me and prove to me that you've got your doctrine set, then you're ready to be baptized. No. He said, why can't I be baptized right now? And Philip said, there's no reason for you not to be baptized right now. Let's do this. And that's why at Keystone Church, we do spontaneous baptism. What do I mean by that? That means that today could be the... So again, the sermon's supposed to answer the question, why baptism? Why? What is? Why does God want you to be baptized? This is supposed to answer the question of why. And so far, we're far from a why. And who's he really preaching about? Keystone Church is who he's preaching about. That you're ready to be baptized today. You may have showed up today and you showed up for church. It's your first time here at Keystone Church. You showed up for church. You may have even dressed up just a little bit because you didn't know the pastor would wear red shoes. You had no idea he'd be wearing these crazy things. You had no idea he'd be in jeans and, and, and a white shirt. And so you may be dressed up a little bit. And it's cool if you dressed up. We, we, sometimes I wear a coat. I just, I, I've learned at the first like five years of Keystone, I never wore a coat, you know, because I just wanted to kind of loosen up. Now I dress up to rebel because everybody dresses down. That's just, just a little insight. So if you see me in a tie, it's because I'm rebellious against you. But anyway, no, we just like to throw you off. So you, you, you okay, you're dressed up, man. You're ready for church, man. You came ready. And, and, you know, okay, let's check this place out. And today will be your day that you say, just like this power broker, why can't I be baptized today? Maybe God has spoken to me today. Maybe today's the day I cross the line of faith forever. And today I'm going to be baptized. Maybe I've been baptized before. I mean, maybe I've crossed the line before. I've followed Jesus at some point in my life, but I've never followed him in that way. Maybe there's a bunch of reasons why today's the day. Why not? Philip says, I mean, the eunuch says, and Philip says, why not? Let's do this. So that's a beautiful, beautiful thing that we see that here you see immediate, immediate baptism. Okay, let's go to the next story. So that's story number one, story number two, then we're going to answer some questions. Okay, so story number one, it was all about immediate, spontaneous baptism. And, I, you know, that's true. When you look at uh, the New Testament, I mean, oftentimes... You know, somebody is brought to penitent faith and trust in Christ, and they're baptized immediately. No problem with that, uh, okay? But again, the question is, why baptism? Now, pay close attention to the second passage he's going to. to Matthew three thirteen. This is when Jesus is walking and teaching and reaching and helping. 
And it says in verse 13, then Jesus went from Galilee to the Jordan River. This is before he was baptized. This is when he's just beginning teaching. He's just beginning to get out there and do the miracles, just beginning his ministry. And he says he went to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. But John tried to talk him out of it. Okay, now we're going to stop right there. And we're going to go to another passage of Scripture. And like I said, we're going to knock this passage right out. Okay? And it needs to be knocked right out because there's a major problem here. Major problem here. In Matthew chapter 3, we're talking about the baptism performed by John the Baptist. Is John the Baptist's baptism Christian baptism? Answer, no, it's not. These are not. This is not the same thing. When we talk about one faith, one baptism, okay, we're not talking about John the Baptist's baptism. And how do I know this? From a very clear passage of Scripture that's part historical narrative and part theological teaching. We'll start at Acts chapter 18. I'll start at verse 24 and keep reading a little bit into chapter 19. Uh, Acts 18, 24 reads, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that uh, the Christ or the Messiah was Jesus." Chapter 19, and it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you, were, when you believed? And they said, No, we have not heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Well, into what then were you baptized? And they said, Well, into John's baptism. This would be John the Baptist's baptism. Okay, now notice here, this is critical to note, in the way the Apostle Paul is, is uh, asking this question, receiving the Holy Spirit and baptism go together. They're not separated. They are absolutely, inextricably linked in, this, in Paul's mind, in the way, he's, the way he's asking these questions. So let me read again. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. That should tell you something. They haven't been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So into what baptism were they baptized? Well, they they received John the Baptist's baptism. Now, this is important. John the Baptist's baptism is not, according to the apostolic record here, considered to be Christian baptism. You know, water in the Spirit. Okay? No, not at all. And so here we have an example of rebaptizing because John the Baptist's baptism is not Christian baptism. And say, so they said, into John's baptism, and Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after. That is Jesus. So on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. So... 
again, so here's the deal. Baptism and the Spirit, well, they go together. And John the Baptist's baptism is not Christian baptism. So this passage, Matthew chapter 3, cannot be used to give us the proper understanding theologically of what baptism is and what it's for. John the Baptist's baptism is not Christian baptism because those here in, in Acts 19 who had only received John the Baptist's baptism, they had to be baptized. They had to be baptized. So um, we've got a big problem here, and it's important to note, we're not getting clear didactic text regarding the theology of why somebody should be baptized. We continue. He said, I am the one who needs to be baptized by you, he said. So why are you coming to me? See, John knew who Jesus was. He had a special insight on this deal. He knew Jesus was the son of God. He knew Jesus was the one the Bible had been prophesying about. So many prophecies all throughout the Old Testament. He knew Jesus answered them all. But Jesus answered in verse 15, it should be done for we must carry out all that God requires. So John agreed to baptize him. After his baptism, Jesus came up out of the water and the heavens were opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. So what do we see here? First of all, Jesus answers, why should he be baptized? Jesus, the son of God. John says, why are you being baptized? Man, I'm the one who needs to be baptized here, not you. And Jesus was not baptized to wash away his sin. This is huge. Okay. No, what's huge is, is that you're appealing to John the Baptist's baptism, which, according to Acts 19, is not Christian baptism, in order to derive your theology of baptism. This is extremely problematic. In fact, what we're getting is not a real understanding of what baptism is for. Appealing to Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist does not tell us the theology of why Christians should be baptized. This is why we have to go to the clear text. For instance, Acts chapter 2, 38, where the Apostle Peter says, Repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. Or Acts twenty two sixteen, Ananias says to Paul, after he's been blinded on the road to Damascus, Rise, washing away your sins. Titus 3, that uh, says, Baptism is washing of regeneration. Colossians 2, that in our baptisms, we are buried with Christ, we're raised with Christ, and our hearts are circumcised, not by the hands of men, but by the hands of Christ. There are clear passages that tell us exactly what Christian baptism is for, and Brandon Thomas is not ref is not appealing to any of those. And he just said, well, Jesus' baptism wasn't to wash away sins, with the implication that, well, don't, don't think for a second that baptism is about washing away sins, because Jesus didn't have his washed away. Yes, but Jesus wasn't baptized with a Christian baptism. He was baptized by John the Baptist, and that John the Baptist's baptism, according to Acts 19, does not constitute a Christian baptism. Jesus wasn't baptized, and in the water, all his sin was washed away. That's not the way it works. Because see, Jesus, the Bible teaches us, had no sin. He was God in the flesh, God walking among us. Jesus had no sin. So did baptism wash away his sin? No. John was confused by this. And Jesus said, 
I'm going to be baptized because it's what we should do. It's what God requires. Now I want to introduce a little word that sometimes can make us feel a little uptight, obedience. Okay, so therefore the only thing he can come up with as to why baptism, answer, stark, naked, raw, law. This is nothing but you have been told to do it, get wet, obey. Yet all of the clear passages make it clear that God is at work in baptism and it's grace. It's gospel. It's grace. It's a free gift. Your sins are washed away. It's for the remission of sins. It's for your children. It's a washing of regeneration. You're buried with Christ. You're raised with Christ. Your heart is circumcised by Christ. You have a clean conscience as a result of baptism. But he's not appealing to any of those texts because that would mean that God is active and that baptism is efficacious because God is active in it. God the Holy Spirit is in it and doing something to you. He's giving something to you. But that's not how Brandon Thomas is preaching this. It's all stark, naked obedience. And he's doing this. He's driving. He's deriving his theology from a text that isn't even about Christian baptism. Okay, I'm going to let it settle in. Obedience. Obedience. Some of you are like, you're going to tell me what to do. What did Jesus said? He said, you should do it. It's what God requires. So I'm going to show everybody. No, when, when asked why I should be baptized by you, Jesus said, let it be so now in order to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus didn't say, well, therefore, you must be baptized. This is something you've got to do. It's a work that you've got to do. John's baptism is not synonymous with Christian baptism. It's the exact opposite. What they should do. That's what he did. He showed people how to love one another. He showed people how to let heaven touch earth through their life. He showed people how to bring new life to others. He showed people forgiveness. And he showed people that as you're starting on your journey of walking with God, you should be baptized. So now he's applying a theology this to this that applies to Christians. So when you begin your journey uh, with Jesus Christ, like Jesus began his journey, you've got to be baptized out of obedience. And yet no text, no didactic text actually says this theology regarding baptism. And he's, in fact, he's absolutely denying what the clear passages say regarding baptism. We continue. He said it's, it's what God requires of us. So it's a word of obedience. No, actually, Jesus did not say it's something that God requires of us. That's not what he said. When asked why he was being baptized, he said it was to fulfill all righteousness. And he was not saying, therefore, this is what God requires of all of us. That is not what the text says. Obedience. Now, this is, this is a little out of vogue sometimes to talk about obedience because it makes us kind of stiffen up a little bit. Some of y'all right now, your posture just got amazing. I mean, you're kind of like this, all of a sudden, obedience. Okay, I'm listening. But let me just ask a question. Are there any parents in the house, North Fort Worth, here, Keller, raise your hand if you are a parent. If, you're a, if you are a parent, obedience is a beautiful thing. I love obedience when it comes to my kids. Hey, Ava, don't run into oncoming traffic. Obedience is a beautiful thing. 
Hey, don't reach up on that hot stove. Obedience is a beautiful thing. There are those times where the kids just nail obedience. And if you're like me, let's just keep it real. And you said, and you, they asked you for something. Can I have more, you know, cotton candy? It's my third one. And you say, no, because you're going to vomit everywhere. And they say, yes, sir. Some of y'all haven't had that moment yet, have you? For most of us, it's, ah, come on, my friends have R. Rather, they say, yes, sir. And you're like, what just happened? I think they just got saved. You know? I think the Holy Spirit has just inhabited that body. But here's the thing. When, when, that, when heaven touches earth like that, right, and you have that moment where they receive that obedience, it's a beautiful thing, isn't it? It's a beautiful thing. Why? Because for those that are underneath our authority, obedience is a gift. If you're parenting in the sweet, st- sweet spot of God's success for your life, you're in his flow, you have his power within you, you're a Christ follower, you've crossed the line of faith, he's helping you with your parenting, he's empowering you for parenting, then you are leading them to healthy life. Why does the Bible say, children, obey your parents? It'll lead to a harvest of right living. Why? Because you're guiding them to health. You're guiding them to life. You're helping them avoid things. If you just let them run on their appetites and never have a chance to obey, you're leading them astray. But the Bible teaches obedience. The problem for us is not for those underneath our authority. It's for those whose authority we are underneath that obedience becomes a problem. See, we have a problem with obedience when it's being asked of us. Truthfully, what does this mean? This means that if Jesus Christ, the son of God, co-creator of all the universe tells us, I want you to be baptized. How about a yes, sir? How about a yes, sir? It's called the over under principle. Just stark naked obedience. Keep listening though. Cause this, something he's about to say is extremely telling. If you really want to have power in your life for those that are under your influence, we must get under our higher authority. See, as you get under what God has put over you, you can then get over what God has put under you. And here it's very clear. God is saying as a Christ follower, step number one, baptism is a sweet spot for me. Now, um, Matthew chapter three is not Christ saying baptism is step number one. Obey. It's not what it's about. It's John the Baptist baptism, not Christian baptism. Let's keep it real. Why? Why baptism? I'm going to effort to explain the significance of baptism. I'm going to effort to explain the beauty of baptism. Now, listen, he's trying to answer the why question. I'm going to effort to explain the, 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 the power of baptism. But when it comes to the deep down why... I truly am not so sure. Yep, that's right. He's ignoring all of the other passages that say baptism is for the remission of sins. It's a washing of regeneration. In our baptism, we are buried with Christ. It doesn't say symbolically. It says we are buried with Christ. We are raised with Christ. And our hearts are circumcised, not with human hands, but by Christ's hands. This is what Scripture says regarding our baptism. So here he's just looking at, well, Jesus said it was work he had to do, so it's work we got to do. He's telling us, even though he hasn't said so, we got to obey just like he obeyed. And why we have to obey? Well, 
I don't know. All on. This is a work you've got to do because you've commanded to do it. And he completely ignores and doesn't know what to make of all of the gospel promises that are given to us in our baptism by clear didactic passages of scripture. So he's misused two historical texts, is ignoring all of the other clear texts that tell us what baptism is for. And when push comes to shove, why do you need to be baptized? What does uh, Brandon Thomas say? Uh, mm, uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm really not sure. That is telling. Why God said, I want you to get wet. It could be he's just funny. Look, so the next segment of this sermon, it's all just pure speculation. He doesn't know why, so he's just going to take some shots in the dark. We like humor. We're made in his image. It could be that he gets his kicks out of seeing your little, I've been to South Lake at the blow bar. He wants to see your blow bar hair all matted down. He's like, hey, hey Michael, Archangel, check that out. It could be he's just funny that he sees you just trying so effortly, uh, you know, efforting to get the Mac attack on your eyes. Just, And then it's, <laughs> you know, you look like, oh, I'm not going to say that. So much goes by. You don't even know. But, you know, you just, you just, you know, you come out of the water and the mascara is running and maybe he just gets a kick out of it. It's just like fun. And I, I'm obviously being tongue in cheek. Maybe it's the humility. Maybe it's the humility that we kind of put up, you know, we dress up and we sharpen up and we get it going and we've got it together. And maybe it's the humility that when you come out of that water, it's just you. There's no pretense. There's no. This maybe, maybe, maybe it's because he's trying to save us from aliens from outer space. There's no, you know, styling and profiling. It's just wet and clumpy. You can't predetermine how your hair is going to fall, you know, it's just you. And maybe the first step of humility is what God's looking for. Maybe God's saying no more ego. If you want to follow me, the first. Now, again, this is all just speculation. He doesn't know why we have to be baptized. He's just guessing. Step is you letting go of your ego. Maybe that's it. I think obedience is a big deal, but you know what else is a big deal? What we see here in this story, pleasure. We just did a series called Live It Up, talking about how to have Christian pleasure, how to truly love life. And we talked about it. We, we hit it. But you know what? The craziest thing here is that we learn in this story, what does the Bible say? It says in Mark chapter 1, verse 11, and a voice from heaven said, you are my dearly loved son and you bring me great joy. So now that apparently applies to us when we're baptized. Without baptism actually doing anything, you are now declared to be God's son by your obedience. I, I memorized this when I was a kid, and it was this way. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. <laughs> this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. See, when, when Jesus was baptized, he brought pleasure to the heart of God. Now, I love it when I please people that matter to me, when I bring them pleasure. When the kids hit the beach on vacation, I saw their eyes light up with joy, and they're so excited, that filled my heart with joy. When Beck was, was swinging 
at the waves and he looked at me. He was seeing, did I please you with that shot? Did I do it just right? Am I tough? Yeah, you are, buddy. I could tell you there have been times, Susan matters a lot to me. Her opinion matters way more to me than anybody else on the earth. Susan, my wife. And um, that there have been days where, you know, she's been out and about and she comes back at the end of the day, kids are down. And I looked at her and I said, let me tell you something. I was dad of the year today. I just felt, you know, have you ever had that day where you felt like you nailed it as a friend, as a spouse, as a father, as a mother, where you're like, I don't know what happened, but I nailed that. Tomorrow I'm going to be an abysmal failure. I'll have anger. Today it was love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. I don't know what happened, but I nailed it. Or you said, man, I was the perfect friend today. I was listening. I didn't interrupt. I was there. I brought soup. And I just, I need to stay away because that's as good as it gets, you know? I don't know if you've ever had that moment where somebody you love, you, you nailed it and you pleased them. It feels good, doesn't it? You know, according to this, when you follow God in baptism, I don't understand it, but it brings pleasure to the heart of God. It's a way that you can know that at the beginning of your following. So this is your obedience doing that, not for the sake of Christ, but by your obedience. Jesus, I can please him. This is how to bring pleasure to the heart of God. It's not a way that you get God's attention. It's a way that you express pleasure and obedience in God's attention. You have God's attention. It's not a way that you get a relationship with God. It's a way that you express a relationship with God. Two totally different things. When Beck is punching away at the... Without a single passage that actually says that. He's just now coming up with theological propositions and assertions without any text that say it. Waves, he's not punching, saying, am I your kid today? Are you pleased enough with me today that I'll, I'll be your kid at the end of the day? No, he's my kid. That's done. But when he's punching, he's saying, as your kid, did I do okay? And according to this, when you get baptized, there's pleasure. One of the coolest things about when you seek to please the heart of God, here's the craziest thing that happens. This will blow your mind. Some of us, we think that by pleasing God, it's going to ruin your life. But what you learn is when you seek to please the heart of God, it fills your life with joy. You're made to please the heart of God. When you really nail it with God, understand it fills you with a joy that's incomprehensible. It actually fulfills your life. I could tell you there have been those that have had resistance to baptism here at Keystone Church because of tradition or the way they grew up or something like that. Various reasons. They just kind of stubbornly held on. Talk to us about it a little bit here and there. And then there's something that happens in a service like this where at the end of the service, like we'll do this weekend, both of our campuses, at the end of the service, we'll give you an opportunity to stand up and leave this room and go be baptized. You didn't plan on getting baptized today. We've seen people this weekend leave the room and go be baptized. Some of these people had resisted for a long time, just held off, didn't want to do it, just held off for whatever reason, waiting, whatever, maybe just didn't feel like they needed it. And they've held off. And I could tell you, I've never seen anybody that came up out of the water. And once they got up out of the water, they were just like, It's about a five on a 10, you know, I've never seen that. 
matter of fact, we had. So the reason you should be baptized is because it's going to make you happy. You're going to have a positive experience. Wonderful, wonderful mom. Great person here at Keystone Church. Unbelievable person. Her husband was praying for her during this service. Some of you may be praying for someone you love right now. Her husband was praying for her just because this was an area of resistance. It was an area of of just holding on, man, just really just holding tight, bowing up a little bit. And she just held off for various reasons, and he was praying for her. She went to be baptized, and the expression on her face of release. I've just never seen anybody not have that when they were really following God in this way, not be filled with joy themselves. When you please the heart of God, it pleases you. It fills your heart with fulfillment. You cross that line. It's a beautiful thing. So baptism is obedience. Baptism brings pleasure, but it's also symbolic. Romans chapter six, verse three. This is a hey, Now, before he reads it, I'm going to read Romans chapter six and point out to you, nowhere does the word symbol show up in here. What shall we say then? Romans chapter six, verse one. Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? Well, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? It doesn't say symbolically. What were you really immersed in when you were immersed in baptism? Answer, not water. Yeah, physically there was water present, but the thing you were really immersed in was Jesus. This is what this text say. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So Romans 6 does not say symbol. It says the real, the real thing actually happened. You were put into Christ in your baptism. And notice what Brandon Thomas do, is doing by taking Matthew chapter 3 and basically saying, well, Jesus had to do it because he had to obey, and therefore he's saying to us, you got to do it because you got to obey too. Here's a good reason why he might. it's going to bring happiness to God, and you'll feel happiness too. Oh, and it's symbolic of something, but the text doesn't say symbol. It actually says reality. We continue. A guy named Paul who wrote this. You see this all over the Bible, all over. Or have you forgotten that when we became Christians... And were baptized. So here we see you became a Christian. You were immediately baptized. When we became Christians and were baptized to become one with Jesus Christ, we died with him. This is huge. The symbolism of baptism is that when you go under the water. It's not mere symbolism. There's no passage that says that baptism is a symbol. When you go under that water, it's a powerful symbol it's a powerful expression of a death. We died with him, the Bible says. It's the symbol of a death. It's a symbol that when Jesus died on the cross, he took your sin with him. Now, he- now, again, this is a real uniting. Paul continues, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now, watch how this works. If I insert the word symbol here, see if this text makes sense. For we, if we have been symbolically united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be symbolically united with him in a resurrection like his. Nope. This is talking reality, not symbol. When you put the word symbol in there, it doesn't work because we're not going to be symbolically raised. We're going to be really raised. We continue. Hear me on this. He did not just take the sins 
of Christians with him. He took the sins of every living human being, past, present, or future, with him on the cross. He took the sins of the universe with him on the cross. So if you follow Jesus, he will not then take your sins on the cross. Jesus took your sins on the cross over 2,000 years ago, and he took your sins to the grave. All you have to do is trust him for that. All you have to do is receive that gift. And what that means is not only did Jesus die on the cross for your sins, so you see him being laid in that tomb. When you go under the water, you think Jesus, but also you think yourself. Because what you're doing is you're taking all of your past sins and you're burying them. Now, notice who he said was doing the work. Okay. You are taking your past sins and you are burying them symbolically, not for real. But you're doing it. Here, who's doing the work? We have been baptized into Christ. We were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism. Who's doing the work in Romans 6? You or God? Answer, only God can do what's being described here in Romans 6. And because Brandon Thomas's theology of baptism is from a text that doesn't actually deal with Christian baptism and he's made it all about obedience, a call comes back to you. This is all about what you've got to do, not what's being given to you. We continue. You're taking all the things that you've done and you're putting them in the grave. You're taking your sins and you are crucifying them. Not for real. Remember, it's just a symbol. Yet he can't help himself. He's trying to make it sound like a reality because the text is talking about the reality. But if you push him on it, well, well, you're not really doing it. It's just a symbol of you doing it. On the cross with Christ. That means this beautiful word. That means forgiveness is possible. That means that when you put your sins on the cross, when you trust that Jesus died for your sins so that you could have a new way of living, that means... Again, I got to bring a text into play here. Isaiah 53 We don't put our sins on the cross. The scripture says God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Big difference. This is all, he's turned baptism into all about the thing that you've got to do rather than the thing that God has done for you. You take everything that you've ever done, every addiction, every appetite, Every bad reputation, the things from your past, people pigeonholed you, people labeled you, you're, you're, you're this at work, you're the lazy one, you're the, the low accomplisher, whatever it is, you can put that in the grave. When you go under that water, you're saying no to my yesterday and yes to my tomorrow. You say, I will not be defined by the adultery. I will not be defined by the cheating. I will not be defined by the lying. I will not be defined by the wildness. I will not be defined by my yesterday. I'm putting it in the grave. But here's a really cool thing. When we baptize here at Keystone Church, we don't leave you in the water. Oh, yeah? Well, we'll recite John 3.16 for me. Okay, what are your views on uh, transubstantiation? What are your views on the uh, substitutionary atonement of Christ? What are your views on the post-trib, pre-trib, whatever trib? Trib in the crib. And we, like, make people answer a ton of questions before they come out. You know, here's the crazy, that sounds silly. You know, the beautiful thing about Keystone is when you go under the water, nailing your sins, 
symbolic of what of, of what you've done but with God, where you put your sins in the grave, you immediately come up out of that water. You don't spend any time in death. You know, so for every one ounce of death, there should be a lifetime of life. For every one ounce of death, for every time you ask God to forgive you of a sin, it should lead to a harvest of, of life. Far too many Christians stay underwater. Stay in the- I don't even know what he's talking about at this point. Grumpy. They get the church lady face. They're just mad all the time. You're in the grave. You don't realize what you've been forgiven from. You're not living in this air of freedom. You're living in condemnation. God says, breathe new air. Get, get up out of the grave. Experience new life. Get up out of that grave. Get up out of that grave. Just symbolically, though. So baptism is about death, but baptism as you come up out of the water is all about life. It's all about life. A couple of thoughts, questions to be answered. You say, well, why not be baptized then? Why not? Just like the eunuch, just like that power broker. Why can't I be baptized right now? Why would you not be baptized? Here's some common things that we hear. Number one, I just don't need it. I don't think I need it. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm loving Jesus. I'm, you know, I'm serving. I'm, I'm, I've, I've come a long way, you know, and my family's changed forever. And I just don't know that bad. I, don't, I mean, I just don't think I need that. Again, I want to point you to one of the most powerful things where Jesus said, it is required. We should do it. Again, all obedience. And where did Jesus say it was required well, technically, you would have to go to Matthew 28, the Great Commission. But he's preaching from Matthew 3, John the Baptist's baptism. There's something really theologically screwy going on here. The early story, saved and baptized. Go through the New Testament. Prove me wrong. Read it yourself. Saved and baptized. Saved and baptized. It's God's design. Saying, I don't need it. It's a dangerous thing when you say to God, I know there are things you've clearly told me that I need to do, but I'm going to choose this one, this one, and this one. What that does, it puts you in a position of authority over God rather than being under God. I don't need it. Yes, you do. It's an obedience question. That's an obedience issue. Number two, it will break my little granny's heart. It'll break my granny's heart if I get baptized. And I'll go two ways on this. First, let's talk about baby baptism. Baby baptism. Some of us, uh, we've been baptized as babies. You're Again, Acts chapter 2, verse 39. Baptism is for you and for your children. This is what Scripture says. Jesus said, go and baptize all nations. Children are always considered part of a nation. There's in Scripture, in the book of Acts, entire households baptized. And notice this, nowhere in the New Testament is there a prohibition saying, do not baptize your children. In fact, the clear passages of scripture all point to the fact that baptism, the promises in baptism are for our born dead and trespasses infants, as well as any adult that has survived infancy. Episcopalian, Lutheran, Catholic, whatever, maybe Presbyterian, you grew up in an, in an environment where you were baptized as an infant. And as a baby, you were baptized and you kind of say, man, uh, I can't go against my, my family heritage. 
Let me, let me help you first of all. At Keystone, we don't mock baby baptism. We don't make fun of baby baptism. Actually, I'm pretty pumped that you had a family that cared. So could we give it up for the families that cared enough to have you in church? Let's honor them. Let's honor them. Let's love them for that, man. Let's talk, baby baptism. Just don't punk, you know, just be cool. So, you know, we're not going to get up in anybody's grill. Really, baby baptism was originally, and I think at its best, it's a condition of the heart of the parent, really, where you're saying, man. Yeah, the um, the Lutherans teach what Scripture says, that it's for the forgiveness of sins, that it washes away sins. Christ circumcises the heart. And the uh, letter that I showed uh, from Cyprian of uh, Alexandria was pretty straightforward. You know, already by the middle part of the third century, the question wasn't, you know, should we baptize him? But the question was, should we baptize him immediately or do we need to wait the eight days? Because, you know, circumcision was eight days for the, you know, for kids who were circumcised under the Mosaic Covenant. Do we need to wait? And Cyprian's answer, no, you can baptize him immediately. Yeah, we got some... uh, I don't think Brandon Thomas has really studied what the scripture says regarding baptism. This baby, I dedicate them to lead them in an environment where they will one day taste and see that God is good for themselves. We do it as dedication because far too often it's been a little more confusing. People have come to believe that when I was baptized as a baby, I was baptized into the church as a Christian. And what that means is that the water washed away my sin. And yet, Acts chapter 22, verse 16 says that exact thing. So here he's correcting all of those people who say, um, my baptism washed away my sin. And he's saying, no, 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 that's not what's going on at all. But let me read the text. This is Paul's account of his baptism. If you were to ask the Apostle Paul, what happened to you when you were baptized? He'd say, oh. My sins were washed away. How do I know? Here's the text. Acts 22, verse 12. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. At that very hour he received, I received my sight and I saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, to hear the voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to every one of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Now, here's a question I have for you. If the Apostle Paul can say, when I was baptized, my sins were washed away, and that's in accord with what Scripture says, is it okay for me for you, for anyone else to say, oh yeah, when I was baptized, my sins were washed away. Would I be wrong in saying that? Would you be wrong in saying that? Or would you be perfectly, biblically correct in saying that? I think the answer is obvious. You'd be absolutely biblically correct to say, oh yeah, when I was baptized, my sins were washed away. Because that's what happened to the Apostle Paul. Why wouldn't it also be the same for you? Because Paul's baptism is the same baptism you have. One faith, one Lord, one baptism. Paul's baptism is the same baptism you and I were baptized into. Did it wash away our sins? Scripture says so. 
Why is Brandon Thomas saying that it doesn't? And as we saw from Christ, Jesus had no sin. Baptism is not a washing of the sin away. It is a symbol and a step of obedience. And yet the passage says, rise and wash away your sins. As a Christ follower, in the approval of God, pleasing the Father, not to get the approval of God. That's totally different. So baptism as a baby, you don't know what you're doing. This isn't a belief thing. You're burping, wanting to eat. And so it's based upon your ability to comprehend something. Maybe wetting yourself. There's nothing else, you know, that's what's going on. It's not a you thing. It's a, it's a family thing, and that's a cool thing. So infants can't be saved. But, uh, you know, so don't let tradition hold you back. Another side of the granny thing, some of y'all say, but man, man, my granny's in heaven, right? She'd be rolling in her grave. I've heard that many times. Man, my family would be rolling in their grave if they knew I would get baptized at a church that plays rock music. You know, let me help you with that. If granny's with the Lord, she's good with your baptism. You want to know why? Because the Bible teaches baptism. And if she's with the Lord, she's 100% in agreement with the word of God. Sometimes tradition will get us a little bit off. That doesn't make the people we love horrible people. So don't get all rebellious and all, you know, huffity with them, puffity. But what we can do is just say, you know what? This is where tradition has kind of evolved to a place that's just not biblical. It's tradition but it's not Bible. So I'm going to follow God. I'm going to follow God here. So if, if you have any worries about that, know that one day we'll all agree on this issue in the presence of God. Number three, I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed. And you know, it's just, isn't my thing. You know, I can't really let you off the hook on this one because I think that sometimes it's a good thing for us to have humility. I think humility is a, is a very important step for all of us. So the last thing you want is somebody that says, I love Jesus, but you, you want to be the, the secret. You want to have the secret agent salvation, right? I think baptism is an incredible thing because it kind of forces a change in some of your relationships. You're declaring, here's where I'm at. I'm embarrassed, man. I don't want people to see me as a hypocrite. I mean, last Friday night I was out partying it up and here I am. Go for it. Let God sort that out. Let the resulting life that you live be the authenticator of this public display of affection with God. Don't be embarrassed. And nowhere in Scripture does it say that baptism is a public display of affection for God. Nowhere. Not a single passage actually says it. Too embarrassed to do it. And by the way, we try to help you with that embarrassment. We give you a change of clothes. We give you hair dryer back there to blow your hair and get it back to the South Lake blow bar thing. You know, we, we totally hook you up. We got changes of this, that, and the other, deodorant. You know, some of you should already be embarrassed. Number four, number four, my family isn't here. My family isn't here. Now, I'm really going to help you with this one. In 20 years of ministry and helping people follow Jesus in this way, I have heard countless times a, a statement like, well, I'm going to wait for my aunt who's in Wisconsin. And when she comes from Wisconsin, then I'll do it. She ain't coming. She never comes. You're going to wait forever if you're waiting on your aunt. Even if you give her a date, she'll find a reason to miss it, okay? I'm, I, you may love her like crazy, but listen, don't do that. Follow God first. Make that be the gift to your family, that you love Jesus above all things. And we, we try to help you with that. We take pictures, videos, 
we, we get astounding video imagery, and we can give all of that to you. You can share it with your whole family. You can play it at your next family reunion. Um, you can have a blast that way. So we, we take it away. But here's the big thing. Here's the big thing. Will you follow God in this way? It's really simple. When God makes something this clear, it's just will you do it or not? And what's going to hold you back from following him in this way? Don't hold on to your opinions or pride at the expense of the pleasure of God for your life. So here's what I want to do. I want to give those of us an opportunity. As you begin to hear me talk about your sins could be put in the grave, something touched you. But only symbolically, not for real. I mean, you can't believe it, but something touched you. When I begin to talk about you could have a new life and a new powerful life. Just symbolically, though, right? You said, I'm in. I want some of that. I want to help you find that. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, no Fort Worth, listen to this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the grave, you'll be saved. So I want to lead you to pray with me through that. And then after we're done praying, we're going to pray together. At the end of that prayer, we're going to start singing and we're stand to our feet. As we stand to our feet, I'm going to ask you to leave your seat and go be baptized. At both of our campuses, in the hallway, in the lobby, you can walk right out there. We have people there ready to help you with the change of clothes. We have a private place for you to change. Uh, we've got everything you need to make this a flawless experience where we will all be celebrating. You don't have to worry about embarrassing yourself even by getting out of the road. This is a happy room for you. This is a place where we're for you. So you just kind of nudge your way past people and we'll be celebrating. We'll be clapping. We'll be cheering for you. That's what our heart is here at Keystone Church. So if you pray with me right now, I want to urge you, follow God in baptism right now. Maybe some of you, you've, you've prayed this before and you've not been baptized yet. Maybe even recently. Maybe last Easter. I don't know. But you prayed recently or at Christmas services and, and you just haven't followed God that way yet. Today's your day. And I want to urge you, even if you didn't prepare, we're ready for you. You can nudge your way past your row, go into the hallway, the lobby, and you can you can be baptized today. And then maybe some of us, you've been attending Keystone for a bit and you don't know when it happened, but now you say, I don't know when I prayed. I don't know how it happened, but I know I'm here. I know that I love Jesus. I know that I believe. I know that I'm with you. Let baptism be the marker. Plant that flag of your relationship with God through baptism. So here's what we're going to do. Can we just bow our heads and close our eyes? Done. So there you go. That is a garden variety. That's not out on some fringe spectrum of what's being preached about baptism in American evangelicalism. That's pretty much the standard argument. Why baptize? Well, ultimately, what did Brandon Thomas say? I don't know. I don't know why. Matthew chapter 3, Jesus did it because he was being obedient. Therefore, you've got to do it in order to be obedient. But Jesus' baptism was the baptism of John the Baptist, not a Christian baptism. So which is it? Is baptism your work, your symbolic work, pure, just stark naked obedience? Or are the texts that make it clear that God is the one working in baptism and that there are all these gospel promises attached to it? Are those why you should be baptized? Open up your Bible now. Read the texts regarding baptism. Which texts tell us what it is? Find those texts and believe what Scripture says. Mm-hmm. 
All right, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, and you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.